0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast. Behavioral health and human service organizations have to demonstrate outcomes. They have to run programs that make people better and prove it. And so the mad scramble for data is well underway. But data is just numbers. Outcomes are just results. And connecting the two is the work. So if it has to do with driving better results for clients using a data-driven approach, we cover it here on the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast. My guest today is Brandy Williams, the Deputy Executive Director at the Rappahannock Area Community Services Board in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, Brandy has over 18 years of experience serving individuals with behavioral health needs and developmental disabilities. The last 13 years, Brandy's worked at the Rappahannock Area Community Services Board, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the education, recovery, treatment, and wellness of individuals affected by mental health. Substance use disorders and developmental disabilities. Brandy, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Jason.
0: So that's kind of your bio. Why don't we hear in your words a little bit about um, the Rappahannock CSB and you know what kind of um, services and, and programs you're running there?
1: Absolutely. We're really excited to be a nonprofit agency here in the state of Virginia who provides services to support individuals in the categories that you mentioned, the behavioral health, substance use, and intellectual disabilities, as well as prevention programs to help um, the community overall intervene early before um, any concerns or issues Elevate. So our services provide everything from you can stay for a service, you can stay for a visit a day or a lifetime. We have everything from outpatient, your traditional outpatient behavior health services to full 24 hour support on both our mental health and our developmental disabilities areas. So and everything in between, we have over 30 locations and we're spread out of, around five counties.
0: That's great. Okay, so um, in your role with the agency, you were instrumental in um, really establishing metrics. We talk a lot about um, data and measurement on this program. Um, Tell us a little bit about that process that you had to go through in sort of getting that data-driven culture installed.
1: Well, it wasn't the easiest road, if I'm honest. When I came into this position about five years ago, it they recreated a they actually created a position of director of operations which is what I initially stepped into that really focused on bringing data to the forefront previously we did not have established metrics we were seeing kind of the, the rules of the road change to where our being able to effectively tell our story was moving from using words and and kind of case studies to also needing that second part of, Having the numbers to back it up, having the data and having the outcomes to show the good and quality services we are providing. And so, as I came into the position, um, I already loved data. I'm a data nerd, and I'm not afraid to admit it. And I was gung ho. We were going to make the best metrics. We were going to have them tell our story from start to finish, and it was going to be all rainbows and unicorns and roses. And what I failed to consider is that not everybody got as excited about data as I did and in fact some people were were really traumatized by this idea that that we were adding numbers to the words so our in behavioral health it was all about the stories and and trying to kind of bring up that we're not replacing the stories that's the meat and potatoes however we have to Talk, improve ourselves to partners who want to see the numbers, who want us to show, kind of in a quantifiable way, how we're making progress—not just for one individual, but across all of our services, across all of our programs, and even, you know, how we're doing it efficiently and making good use of the the funding that we rely on to support these services. And so, I think it's been a journey. It's been a journey of first having those people who do the work inform what we're measuring and what matters, they have to buy in. They have to buy into how we are assigning um, kind of this this rules of the road. They have to be involved in developing it. And you, you kind of go back and think of, of what are people's experiences with data? And I mean, there's definitely been trauma around data, you know, when when we're growing up we are scored on this report card where it's just your final assessment and you know you get a score you get a you get a grade and that lasts forever so then you then you move into your gpa and then you move into you know that same kind of measurement approach where it's always working to some kind of final evaluation but i think in our case in our services when we're using it for true quality improvement there is no final destination, there is no final grade. We're not operating in pass-fail, we're operating in let's make it better. And I think you have to do some work and there's some things outside of the numbers, outside of how you set up your metrics um, that need to happen before your organization is ready to to use those effectively.
0: Yeah, I love that you mentioned trauma around data and I'm also a big proponent of that and really, it comes from school, I think so much. I, that's just a, a, an awesome analogy. Um, and really, you know, there's this idea of like metrics are red, yellow, and green. And if they're green, we're great. And if they're red, then that's, you know, punitive or, or suggestive of, of punishment. Um, so how did you get your, people to sort of understand that red doesn't mean you're bad. It means we need to target something for improvement.
1: <laughs> I think I got the most most effect when we threw out those colors. I mean, you know, <laughs> those colors in itself are, are have meaning tied to them, right? So, you know, yellow is slow down, red is stop, do not pass go. I think throwing out that general Scheme color scheme that actually has some of that negative connotations already associated with it. I mean, we can tell the same story using purple and green, and you know, any color that you want um, to, to tell the same story. So, really separating out from those associations that that people already have of uh, things that already have a good or a bad associated with it. I mean, taking the colors out of it altogether, and just really looking at you know, consistently giving them the data, again, getting their buy-in on, on what's important to them um, to measure. I mean, sometimes we have no choice, right? So our state agency has metrics that we have to rise to the occasion with. Our payer sources have us, and those metrics that they hold us accountable for. So there are some things we don't have a choice in measuring, but really giving those kind of clinicians, those frontline staff, the ability to at least choose some of the the metrics um, and have input on what's important to them and then bringing them along and why it's important for us to measure this all the other things number two the people you're measuring the programs you're measuring they have to have faith that how you're measuring it is accurate so we had this history of throwing all these reports and numbers at clinicians and assigning values, but never allowing them to question those reports and dig in. And I think just a consistent presence where every month clinicians have an opportunity to see the details, to question, oh, hey, this doesn't look right to me. Okay, well, let's let's sit down together and realize that that questioning is welcome. It's not you know, questioning if I, if I have written a report and, and you think it might have an error, I want you to tell me because I want to be giving you the best information that you can make your decisions off of and building that relationship simultaneously that yes, you know, there are, there are no silly questions here and there's no um, pride attached to the report itself. If it has an error, let's, let's dig in, let's figure out what's going on. Um, And I think, I think, you have to be cognizant of the human nature of data as much as you are the technological aspects of data. And I think sometimes um, you come from a perspective of one or the other, um, and you need you need some staff, you need those resources to kind of help make those two sides meet. Because data and, and quality data takes both. It takes the humans and it takes the tech to, to deliver. So I think it's, it's realizing that both, sides have to go on a journey, and we and need the resources to be able to connect the human to the, the technology in an effective way, and also make sure that people are aware that just as we are working together to make sure that the information is accurate, we're all in with what, you know, trying to figure out what the story is telling us, what the numbers are saying to us, so that we can make improvements. It's not a final measure. I mean, you know, when we come out with the data... And we get it in front of them that's not the end game that's not the gpa you have to put on any kind of application anywhere it's just this is where we are this is where we are and is that where we want to be or how can we use that to get us there if it's not and how can we use that to celebrate if it is moving in the direction that we intended so really seeing it is not a final destination the data is is no longer about final evaluation final destination. It's just really ongoing circling back around and making sure that we're measuring what matters um, and making sure that people understand what matters about what we're measuring.
0: Oh, so, so much good stuff in there uh, as a, as a dashboard builder myself, um, I, I think I, we have to take a hard look at that, and that's something I haven't thought about before. We don't have to use red to indicate subpar performance, and perhaps we shouldn't because of those, um, because of those connotations. And you know what this reminds me of? Um, my father was an English teacher, and so he did a lot of grading papers, and he always marked up papers in green. And I'd never really thought about why, but he didn't want to put, um, the red connotation, you know, the, the comment we always hear, oh, my teacher bled all over my paper with red ink and, and that's all very negative. And so, um, he would grade in green to say that this, the comments are about improving. They're not about knocking down what's there. And I'm going to have to think about that from a dashboard perspective, um, coloring means a lot. Um, and we typically say color to known associations, right? Color to red being the stop sign. But maybe that's not the automatic direction we should go when we color towards, maybe we might need to color away from associations versus towards them. Um, I like that a lot. Okay, so let's talk about two years ago. It's um, it's it's about the end of March here, Um, and two years ago, I was sitting in a in a similar seat as yourself, and we all know there was uh, uh, the data. uh, Anybody working with data has a um, a stop and a a start on March sixteenth, twenty twenty, when COVID happened. So, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience as a quality improvement and somebody controlling a lot of data. um, How did your activities and your job function change um, two years ago when the lockdown started?
1: So it kind of goes back to um, what I was saying about making sure that what we're taking time to measure is what matters. And I think on March 15th, that switched very quickly in a way that we had not seen before so all of a sudden if we were making you know hitting our mark with our uh, you know same day access and and getting them in within 10 days that's what mattered and the next day what mattered is are we able to offer a place that individuals can still access services access services period are we able to offer our employees safe place to continue to access services. What the heck is that going to look like? And are we providing enough of those services to financially sustain the ability to have these services through this what we thought might have been, you know, on March 15th we thought okay, we we need to we need to make it a month, right? So we need to to switch our focus on okay, so from quality services and and what are what are those to really focusing on have we pivoted in a way that we still are maintaining access? So access and sustainability and safety, right? So those were the, the key things. Everything else got pushed to the side. Again, with this mindset that, hey, we're going to have this intense focus on these things for the next maybe month, right? And, and then we will get back we'll get back to what we are. We're going to just put a pause here. We're not stopping these things. We're just going to put a pin in it because this thing's going to be over in a month, right? And I think we went to daily reporting at the beginning, daily reporting around the services were provided at the program level. What does that look like? Um, employees, are, are are we able to get people in through the virtual means? We were, we were positioned, we had our toes into the virtual service provision world. Um, and so we had some of the foundations. We had kind of the HIPAA compliant Zoom accesses and, and all of those in place that we could pivot quite quickly. I think it took us about three days to get our operations fully back and kind of a mindset around what that looks like. But then after those three days of figuring out how we're going to do it, then we shifted to... We need the data to tell us: Are we doing it? You know, is that quick three-day plan? Is that is that lasting? Do we need to continue to do that? And um, that's that's really how we shifted. And again, beginning it was daily reports on on each program, how many services were provided. You know, our annual leave, like our employees. Who is taking leave? Are people still showing up for work virtually? What does that look like? You know, they have their kids with them. Are they taken off for that? You know, do they need to get, you know, tested? How are we going to facilitate that? So using data to underpin those decisions, to help us make those decisions, but also to quickly monitor how we're doing implementing these kind of fly by the seat of our pants plans that the the situation necessitated. And so I think it shifted very quickly to that. And we did that for a while and then realized that, hey, we need to start rethinking how we're going to bring some of this other stuff back because we're going to do this for a while. This pandemic thing did not go away in a month like we anticipated. And so start immediately, even though we're in the thick of it, still trying to plan of how we're going to measure and how we're going to move to the future. But I think it's really just a moment, my moment, even now, it's a week by week decision of, hey, what is mattering right now? What matters right now? Um, And let's measure that. And so that that changes. And over the the past two years, I can't even count how many times that has changed. But really keeping an eye on that focus and letting that guide our decisions, especially around data and what data is needed to support our programs.
0: Yeah, I I had a similar experience. Um, Things that were measured quarterly were were all of a sudden measured daily, right? And can we keep the lights on? And uh, is this thing that we stood up in three days working (laughs) or not? Uh, Because we need to make it work. Um, I also remember, you know, quality improvement shifting from what felt like a proactive approach, you know, plan, do, study, act projects that were, you know, uh, happening in their due time, um, you know, study or measure twice, cut once, let's sort of plan things out and, and think through um, and really they just got thrown out the window, right. For what is the need today and, and how can we support that? Um, and it really wasn't long-term planning. It was my programs need, um, support and they need it today. And today has to be about today <laughs> until we have time for it to be about tomorrow. Um, would you say you're, you know, a couple of years removed now, would you say you're settled back into a new way of operating? Um, what do you think your sort of virtual mix is these days?
1: I I think, you know, we have still experienced kind of that ebb and flow, right? So mm-hmm. our community is really keeping an eye on our community data too, that we have access to. So, you know, we just, I think are about a month out of being a high transmission area in our, in our counties. And, and we've been that way since the beginning. And so we're just starting to see that kind of come down from, you know, being in that highest st- the status level. I mean, talk about red. You know, we've been in the red as far as COVID, you know, percent positivity and transmission for all of our counties for the longest time. And maybe I take it back, maybe there is still some use for the color red in data metrics and measurements. But, you know, I think for us, we've been transitioning back to what does this hybrid world looks, look, look like? Because we're never going to get Pandora back in the box. What we have found is this virtual world, you know, it, 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 it's best for some individuals. What we're also finding through looking at our data is that it is really bad for some of our individuals and, and does not allow the access we want. So we have to find that that happy medium. And that's what we've been doing for I would say about the past year um, is just really, you know, gradually opening back up, really looking at what makes sense. What are, what are our individuals want? And so getting data from them and sending out a a survey that used to talk about, you know, how inviting our waiting room is that we now have switched to, you know, more focused on, you know, do you prefer virtual access? You You know, how is your experience around that? So flipping all the data we're looking at to, to really focus on, okay, let's rethink this. Maybe our brick and mortar doesn't hold water anymore for everybody. And so where does that mix fall? So we're, we're looking at that and we're using our data to, to kind of show us, you know, what, how we're doing. And I think that's the transition. I don't think we're to the new normal. I even hate to say that because it's kind of been overused and it's been the kind of good cr- 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 grab where we're Everybody's working to what this new normal is. And I think the new normal is we're gonna have to keep an eye on this, you know? How are we? It's it's our it's our new normal to look at how are we providing services, not just the way we've always done it, but in this virtual world. How do we unravel some of those decisions we made in those three days when we had no other choice? Um, and and which ones do we keep in place? And so I think for now that's kind of been where we are looking that we have not traditionally looked before but right so you know the things that used to matter are starting to matter again you know we we don't have the in you know the influx of funding um, that came from some of the the pandemic related monetary supports we had access to so that's gone are we are we holding water in our programs what programs have not fared well and maybe aren't going to recover? which programs have really shown, you know, progress. And and I think it's just a a balance of getting back to measuring those things that now matter again. Um, We still need to provide quality services. Now that we have at least a little bit of a handle on access and keeping the lights on, um, we're going back to that. I think looking at, you know, we're accredited. Um, we're CARF accredited, and so we're coming up on our survey this year. And so, brushing off those um, metrics that we look at for that. So around efficiency, effectiveness, consumer satisfaction, and access, and really brushing those off for each program. Our, um, you know, our state agency DBHDS they had some measures that they kind of stopped and rolled back during the the pandemic. So BMI and you know supporting individuals to access their anal health physical, and so ramping those back up. So we are kind of slowly getting back um, and slowly getting to a new place and, and using data along the way. So, you know, our data is not changing every day like it did at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's it's also changing, um, and, it, and it's changing constantly. So really kind of reevaluating how to make a mix of before and a mix of now that makes sense for our programs.
0: Um, okay. So in quality improvement, we work with data, right? But we also like to tell stories. So, uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us a story about, uh, a project that, that you've worked in or around, um, for measuring improvements and, you know, what was the scope and what kind of activities got you there and, and how was, uh, how was, uh, everything better off because of that project?
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know there. There are a lot of examples, but if you're really, for me, at the end of the day, the focus is on um, how have we quantified improvement for the individuals we serve. And and when you mention this, it, it brings up kind of that joint partnership around data um, that makes this example probably a key example. So we in Virginia, there is a statewide data platform emergency department care coordination platform that we are able to bring in data around any emergency department visit that our individuals present to um, and bring that into our own electronic health record so that we can really team around what those numbers are telling us. And so um, one example is with our one of our primary payer sources, they piloted a behavioral health home Um, within our agency, where there were individuals identified using data to kind of get some additional wraparound supports around whole health. Um, And one individual had presented to the emergency department over 94 times in the past 12 months. And because we were able to bring in that data and we were constantly looking at that data, we used it to kind of help with those extra supports we access through the health helm. to really design and argue for some inventive um, interventions to wrap around this individual. And I think after about six months of, of just kind of focusing in and letting the the data tell us how we're doing, supporting this individual, the individual went to presenting 94 times in, you know, a 12 month period to the following 12 month period, she presented to the ED less than four times and all of them were really medically appropriate visits. And I and, and I think when you when you look at that, the story is she was supported. She felt supported. She got the help that she needed. We were able to advocate for things that maybe would not have been traditionally authorized, um, but really using kind of that data. But really what matters is in her own words, when when she said, you know, I, I don't feel like I have to go to the ED." in order to get what I need anymore, I've realized there are other supports around. And so at the end of the day, you know, that's a, a one-person story. Um, and so I'm not sure that that's, that's what you were looking for. Um, but for us, that that's what matters, you know? That's that impact. Um, I think we're able to see that um, kind of across the programs as well. And, and I'll definitely tell you about a program story if you'd like. Um, but for me, it, it's really about, taking the numbers, taking the large access of data. I mean, we collect data on everything. And so taking it and using it um, and then wrapping our a variety of our services around this individual and, and partnering with services outside of our agency to really improve the care and outcomes for an individual. And so when you ask for a story, those are the type that resonate with me.
0: Yeah, so I, I like to say... Um... Don't forget the power of, of one, right? Sometimes the outcome you're looking for is one. It's not about huge population health. That's we have one person who needs to get better, and we were able to, you know, use data triggers to figure out how to serve that that patient. And um, now they're better. That's a positive <laughs> improvement, right? Um, but also, it gives you a bit of a blueprint, right, that you can apply to others. So. As you see uh, other ER visits, um, you know, starting to pile up, you can intervene earlier with something that you know you've seen success with in the past, right? Um, But yeah, if you've got uh, program stories, I'd love to hear that too.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the pandemic-related program stories um, that I like to share too is we Maintain a crisis stabilization um, home, so a residential crisis stabilization program, and you know during the the pandemic, you know access to lower levels of care, while everybody figured out how they were going to do it across the board, became restricted, um, right for for individuals. And so what we were seeing is about a month in, we were seeing those ED visits, those inpatient hospitalizations going through the roof. And we're wondering why. And so they started making phone calls. So taking the time to call every individual that had stayed with them the past year. By doing that, they were able to realize that people weren't able to get supports and services at lower levels of a care. So when you could have jumped in early and avoided a psychological crisis or, or behavioral health crisis, um, they didn't have access to earlier levels. So they were ending up in hospitals and really waiting till that got out of control. And so they used that data that they were collecting on those phone calls after we saw that, hey, we're seeing an increase in the specific population. Um, and they really shorted up and used it to start kind of. Uh, alumni virtual group so people had a place to come, even if they weren't in ongoing services now, to kind of help manage and talk about how this pandemic was, um, you know, kind of impacting everybody and impacting, you know, individuals' mental health. And they also were available 24 hours a day for those individuals who had stayed with them previously to just give them a call if they needed that connection, if they needed, you know, you know, that, you know, one-on-one. And what we did is we measured kind of post-stay, um, how many times individuals kind of um, access emergency services or um, have a psychiatric hospital stays after discharge from crisis stabilization. And what we saw at the first of COVID going uphill um, for the individuals we had served as far as needing more of those, after those phone calls, you started to see that kind of come down because they had a place. They used the data to respond to a need that they never had, had to respond to before. But even now, as we have kind of, you know, transitioned back to a little bit more like the way things were before, they learned that there were still a need there. And so they ongoing provide those groups and provide that opportunity to connect. And I think for me, that was an example of a program that, they didn't have to do those phone calls. They didn't have to do those follow-ups. They didn't have to, you know, use our, our peers to help reach out in that way. They didn't get paid to do that. But what they saw was that there was a need and the data showed the need. And then they used their, their minds and their willingness to kind of jump in and be all in to find a way to meet that need. And so that, that's exciting for me.
0: Oh, that's really awesome. Even if uh, even if COVID was the catalyst that showed you the need that creative problem solving showed you a beneficial path forward, you know, even in a post COVID world, should that ever become such a thing? Um, that's really great. Thank you for those stories. Um, so I ask everybody on the podcast a sort of a final question. Um, if you were, you know, riding the elevator with your, uh, yourself before you started working in, in QI and data, and you know, you had a, a quick elevator ride to give yourself one piece of advice. Um, what would it be? What would you what would you want to impart on somebody else uh, embarking on quality improvement work?
1: Pay more attention to the people. I think um, you know, if I could if I could go back and and redo and and give myself a hint, I think it's you know, data is great, and we need it, and we need the metrics, and we need to measure it. But every part of that process depends on the people, um, and it is more important to bring the people along um, than it is to hit the ground running with with a data driven culture. It's not built overnight, and no one anticipates it's being built overnight. And you just have to pay attention to the people, pay attention to how they feel about data. I think, you know, it was an aha moment just a few months ago. You know, when we first met and. Um, reading the work that you've done around trauma and data, it was an aha moment that, you know, hey, look, I wish I knew that when I started, because that really does impact how successful you are in implementing any quality improvement program is you have to, you have to focus on the people first. And um, I think coming from a data background, coming from, you know, very tech enabled background, um, I think I lost sight of that and didn't realize how important it was to pay attention to the people. So if I could only tell my younger self one thing, um, that that would be it.
0: Uh, That's excellent. And and, and I appreciate that comment. Um, I also wish I knew that Um, in order to uh, write up work about that. um, I had to learn it. I also want to say thank you for sharing Um, you know, some of your comments about, uh, about places that you thought you could have been better. I think it's not always easy, um, to talk about improvement because it admits that you were somewhere else before you are where you are now. And, um, so I give you a lot of credit and want to thank you for sharing those stories. Um, it's important that we normalize a quality improvement story as a positive. And in order to tell that story, you have to talk about where you were before um, to talk about where you are now. So I appreciate you being willing to do that. Um, any final thoughts you want to impart on our, on our listeners?
1: No, I think I have used all my word quota for the day. So I think yeah. I'm good. Thank you for the opportunity to come and have this conversation with you.
0: So thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast. Um, My guest today has been Brandy Williams, Deputy Executive Director at the Rappahannock Area Community Services Board in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Take care.